0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 38 years we have engaged the community in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to the public, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at WestminsterForum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Jonathan Capehart is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and member of the Washington Post editorial board. He's a regular contributor to the blog Postpartisan, and he hosts the podcast Cape Up. Early in his career, he worked for the New York Daily News where he was the youngest member ever to serve on its editorial board. He was a key contributor to the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for a 16-month series of editorials that saved Harlem's famed Apollo Theater. He left the New York Daily News to become a National Affairs columnist for Bloomberg News and then served as a speechwriter and policy advisor to Michael Bloomberg during Bloomberg's first successful campaign for mayor of New York City. In 2011, he was a recipient of the Esteem Award, which honors individuals for their ongoing efforts to support African American and LGBTQ communities in entertainment, media, civil rights, business, and art. But perhaps his greatest claim to fame, at least for us Minnesotans, is his status as an alumnus of one of Minnesota's most distinguished academic institutions, Carleton College in Northfield. I haven't even gotten to you, Jonathan, and they're already cheering. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming back to his Midwestern home, Jonathan Capehart.
1: I have to get my handkerchief out because... Who knows, I might cry, because that's what I do. Um, Thank you very much, uh, Westminster Town Hall Forum, for the invitation to speak to you today. Thank you, Tim Hart Anderson, for your introduction. And thank you to the great state of Minnesota for your role in shaping who I am. 30 years ago this June, I graduated from Carleton College and stayed an extra year to work for then college president Steve Lewis, who was and remains a dear friend and mentor, and I do believe, I haven't found you yet, but I do believe you are in the audience. And uh, with him is another dear friend and mentor and guardian angel, Judy Lewis, his wife. Thank you both very much for, for being here, if you are indeed here. Thanks to my husband and the Schmidt family, good North Dakotans, who have lived on and near Ottertail Lake for decades, I get back to the state at least once a year. So to family who might be listening on the radio, hi. (laughs) Now, I know I'm supposed to deliver a bold look at today's headlines, right? (laughs) But let's be honest. In Trump's America, today's headlines are exhausting. Has he fired anyone else by tweet again? Has he attacked House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff again? Or House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler again? Or former FBI Director James Comey again? Or Hillary Clinton again? Or Democrats again? Or immigrants again? Or asylum seekers again? Or the press again? Has he diminished our standing in the world again? Has he attacked our allies again? Has he attacked the small-D democratic institutions that have helped make this world relatively safer for almost for more than seven decades, like NATO again? Has he talked about the love letter from North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un again? Has he taken Russian President Vladimir Putin's word over that of US intelligence leaders again? Has he praised the strong-arm tactics of Duterte in the Philippines again? Has he coddled white supremacists abroad and here at home again? Has he made yet another bold declaration to close the U.S. border with Mexico or to support background checks for gun purchasers or to create a quote, bill of love to protect dreamers again? Or has he reversed course as if he never said what he said again? Has he rendered meaningless the orthodoxy the Republican Party spent generations creating and preaching again? Has he trampled the Constitution again? And at an average of nearly 22 falsehoods and meeting claims a day this year, according to the Washington Post fact checker, has President Trump lied again? Has he? No, seriously, someone checked Twitter, has he? (laughs) That litany I just recited only highlights how absurd things are today. And it barely scratches the surface of all the deplorable things President Trump has done, is doing, and will do while in office. But I don't want us to lose sight of a few things as all these headlines swirl around us like a quarterly hour hurricane. Most most importantly, I don't want us to lose hope. Throughout my education, I was taught about the greatness of the US Constitution. I was taught that it is the foundation, strong foundation, upon which our democracy rests. And with each passing day, President Trump reveals just how fragile it is. The power of the Constitution doesn't just reside in its words. It also resides in the reverence of them by the 44 men who have sworn to protect it as President of the United States. No matter the party, whether Republican President George W. Bush or his successor, Democratic President Barack Obama, once they walked into the Oval Office, their personal interests took a far back seat to the interests and well-being of the nation. Preservation of the moral authority of the presidency came first. Upholding the rule of law and the fundamental tenets of democracy came first, if only to serve as a model for other nations or as a beacon of hope for those in nations where liberty and justice are in short supply. Our current president has neither the reverence for the constitution nor the moral core needed to lead this nation. That's because he lacks the one thing modern predecessors had, a sense of shame, that emotional break that should keep us from doing the regrettable or unforgivable. And if we've done either, it is that sense of shame that allows us to atone for or be held accountable for our offense. President George W. Bush apologized for his administration's woeful response to the disaster caused by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. President Bill Clinton apologized to the nation for lying about his inappropriate sexual relationship with a White House intern. Even Richard Nixon, with all his paranoia and personal drama, resigned rather than suffer the shame of impeachment after his role in the Watergate break-in was revealed not President Trump. Every day since January 20th, 2017, we have endured a demoralizing deluge of drama and dysfunction from an incompetent president who has run roughshod over decorum and decency and is an affront to our nation's history and the men who preceded him. The president, is still attacking the late Senator John McCain for a vote that saved Obamacare. The president is still calling asylum seekers, quote, animals. The president is still calling the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, a quote, witch hunt. The president still can't find the same ferocity of condemnation for white nationalist terrorism that he directs at Islamic radical terrorism. The day President Trump said there were, quote, very fine people among the neo-Nazis, Klansmen, and other white supremacists marching through the streets of Charlottesville chanting, quote, Jews will not replace us, including one who slammed his car into counter-protesters killing Heather Heyer is the day he fully ceded the moral authority of the Oval Office and through it all and through it all there has been relative silence from the republican party there are a few sycophants who excuse president trump's horrendous conduct and policies as those of a non-politician but for the most part the party of fiscal probity of moral superiority that Hector Democrats, as godless tax-and-spend liberals for decades, has nothing to say about their standard-bearers' penchant for adulterous affairs with porn stars and Playboy Playmates, not to mention his deficit-busting tax law, to name just two of Trump's apostasies. Now, there's a reason for this. Fear, not necessarily of Trump. Fear of the people who put him in office. How much fear could there be when his national approval rating is bouncing between 39%, according to Gallup uh, on March 10th, and 43%, according to the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll in late February? The results of a YouGov survey of voters conducted just this past weekend could not be more timely for me to make this point. President Trump's job approval rating among Republicans sits at 83%. Among those who voted for him in the 2016 election, President Trump's approval rating is 87%. But wait, there's more. YouGov asked respondents who said they approve of the way Donald Trump is handling his job as president if they, quote, approve of everything the president has done, or if they, quote, approve of most of the things the president has done, but disapprove of a few of the things he has done. The combined result? 91%. Go against President Trump, and you are just asking for a primary challenge from your right. And side note, for a president who only cares about the applause from his base, It explains why he hasn't bothered to broaden his appeal beyond that base. This might also explain why President Trump is reportedly trying to jail babies at the border again, which, curiously, was a bridge too far this time for his now ousted Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, but I digress. No wonder the people who had the courage to stand up to the president were Senator Jeff Blake of Arizona and Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, two now former members of Congress who announced their respective retirements after bruising primary challenges seemed imminent. No wonder others have reversed course. See if you can guess who said this to CNN's Wolf Blitzer in March of 2016. He took our problems in 2012 with Hispanics and made them far worse by espousing forced deportation. Looking back, we should have basically kicked him out of the party. The more you know about Donald Trump, the less likely you are to vote for him. The more you know about his business enterprises, the less successful he looks. The more you know about his political giving, the less Republican he looks. We should have done this months ago. That was... Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. I wish I could give you a prize for whoever guessed that. (laughs) Would that that Lindsey Graham were still around? Would that the Republican party he was defending three years ago last month still still existed? That party is dead. I grew up under two terms of President Ronald Reagan and one term of President George H.W. Bush. I was an adult during the two terms of President George W. Bush. During those 20 years, for better or worse, the Republican Party was grounded and stood for things that President Trump freely and openly mocks. It stood for law and order. It stood for fiscal restraint. It stood for family values, so much so that as a candidate in 2000, Bush 43 ran for office promising to quote, restore honor and dignity to the White House. You know, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm let me tell you a story about <laughs> President George W. Bush. Um, I might get in trouble for this, but I'm just gonna throw caution to the wind. So we had, I'd just gotten to the Washington Post after living 16 years in New York City. And we had um, a 45-minute meeting on the record meeting with the president in the private residence of the White House, again, in 2008. At the time, I was on the editorial board and I was writing about climate change. And so because we pretty much knew where the administration was on the issue and where we were, we figured in the limited time that we had, my editor decided that we wouldn't use that time to ask those kinds of questions, so we get there, and President Bush welcomes us to the, ye- the yellow oval room of the residents and announces that the meeting is off the record. And my editor interjects and says, no, look, the staff, we talked about this. This is on the record, um, and it's got to be on the record. Um, and President Bush responded by saying, well, okay, but don't you want Bush unplugged? <laughs> and we, we all laughed and my, my editor insisted okay we're gonna be on the record and we must have you on the record for questions about Afghanistan and Iraq and if you wanted to go off the record later on we sure fine but if you say something that we want on the record we're gonna push hard to get it on the record so I probably shouldn't have told you all this behind-the-scenes, in-the-tent stuff, but it's just us. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) So it was extraordinary because, as I mentioned, I moved to Washington the year before from New York City where New Yorkers viewed President Bush um, in a very unfavorable light. He was dumb, incurious, puppet of Vice President Cheney. And then President Bush asked... Who writes about climate change? Seated on the sofa to the president's left, I said, I do, Mr. President. Well, aren't you going to ask me a question? (laughs) Any journalist worth their salt will always have a question or two socked away just in case. And this was one of those moments. I was getting to the meat of my question when he interrupted me. I know what you're going to ask me, he said, pointing in my direction. He did it just like that. I, so I said, yes, Mr. President, and I stopped talking. Truth be told, I don't remember the question I even asked. But I do remember that he asked the question of himself that I was going to ask him and proceeded to answer it. And when I said if I could follow up, President Bush, again, pointed in my direction and said, I know what you're going to ask me now. (laughs) And then answered the question I was just a breath away from posing of him. Of all my experiences in journalism and in Washington, that moment is among the most indelible because of the odd sense of comfort it gave me. I didn't agree with President George W. Bush on most things, least of all the war with Iraq and the so-called global war on terror. But I left the White House that day feeling that the President believed the decisions he made were in the best interest of the country. I could disagree with what he did and how he, how he did it, but I couldn't deny that his decisions were rooted in something bigger than himself bet you never thought you'd long for the days of W. (laughs) When the history of our nation during this awful period is written, the GOP should be dragged and shamed for its part in it. That's why, in this two-party system of ours, a Democrat must win back the White House in 2020. People... People ask me, who, who is the Democrat who can beat him? My response, the Democrat, (laughs) the Democratic nominee. (laughs) Now, this runs counter to the way Democrats normally behave. See, Democrats have this annoying habit of always looking for the one. The one who will sweep them off their feet in a fit of electoral ecstasy. (laughs) Only their one should make a go of it. All others are deemed inadequate or somehow all wrong for the party or the times. Then there's this other annoying habit. If their one doesn't win the nomination, then the person who actually does win is dead to them. You know it's true. This is the opposite of what Republicans do. They don't have this fixation over the one during contested primaries. It's not their thing. Sure, folks have their favorite candidate and talk smack about the others. Their allegiances shift as the field winnows. But once the party faithful set on a standard bearer, that person is the one. The wagons are circled, and an all-out effort is made to get that person the keys to the White House— Or as former chairman of the Republican Party, Michael Steele, told me last year, quote, to paraphrase that old saying, Democrats want to fall in love, Republicans just want to win. If ever there was a time for Democrats to emulate Republicans' fall-in-line tradition, the 2020 election would be it. There are now 18 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, with two more highly likely to jump in. If anyone's jumped in since I've been speaking, just (laughs) yell it out. I have my favorites, but I've adopted the steel doctrine. I want the Democratic nominee, whoever she or he might be, to win. I'll even vote for Senator Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee, and he isn't even a Democrat. <laughs> president Trump is such a threat to the rule of law and American democracy that nothing should, be, nothing should matter more than making him a one-term president. I feel so strongly about this because I want my country back. (laughs) And there are a few things that give me confidence that we will get it back. The special elections that happened around the country where Democrats won in places or were very competitive in places where they once never stood a chance. They won. The election of Senator Doug Jones in Alabama is a case in point. The overwhelming Democratic takeover of the House in the 2018 midterm elections is another. People across the country took to the ballot box to send a message enough is enough. But I have one caution that Trump's openly racist two-week closing argument delivered to red states in the midterms helped his party gain seats in and maintain control of the Senate should snap you out of thinking that his defeat in 2020 will be easy or is assured. Trump has unleashed ugly forces whose power must not be underestimated. While putt-putting on the river on our way towards Rush Lake last summer, Nick and I gasped when we saw a Confederate battle flag flapping in the breeze, a mere 1,323 miles from Appomattox, Virginia, where the Civil War ended with Robert E. Lee's surrender to the Union 154 years ago today. But the chief reason I am hopeful for the future is the speaker who was in this spot last month, David Hogg. He and the Parkland kids who survived the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School immediately turned their anger and grief into enduring action. I truly believe that they stand on the tiny shoulders of giants. Just as the Birmingham Children's Crusade changed the trajectory of the Civil Rights Movement and our country 56 years ago next month, Hogg and the millions of young people across the country who've joined him and Emma Gonzalez, and Ryan Deitch, and Alfonso Calderon are doing the same for, gun viol- for the gun violence debate in our country today. They represent the America I thought was lost on election night in 2016. That America was not perfect, far from it. But we are a nation that strives for perfection It might take us a while but when that arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, more often than not, it is at the insistence of the American people or of their leaders who had the foresight to see the right path forward. My standing before you today is proof of our country's capacity to do right right by its people, right by its people, right by its founding principles and ideals. I am a descendant of slaves whose parents grew up in the segregated Jim Crow South. My cousins and I are the first generation in our family who didn't have to pick cotton. And I was able to marry the man I love and have the ceremony officiated by Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States who made a key determination that made it all possible. I know what I've just said is incredibly self centered, both personally and as an American. But we must not forget that the United States isn't just a map, isn't just a place on a map. My story, our individual stories, our collective stories, represent a very powerful ideal to people around the world. Last October, when I was in Amsterdam for a speech, I happened to notice the lock screen photo of one of my hosts on her phone. It was of the Statue of Liberty. In that moment, a chill went through me, for it was a glorious reminder that the lady in the harbor, that symbol of freedom and democracy and America, still means something to people around the world despite policies and actions of a president that call everything into question. Make America great again? Let's make America mean something again. Let's make America stand for something true and positive and fair again. Let's make America ours again. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Jonathan Capehart. For those of you listening on the radio, we just had a sustained standing ovation here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. You're listening to the Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jonathan Capehart. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and our online media sponsor, MinPost. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, April 30th at noon, when Episcopal priest, teacher, and best-selling author Barbara Brown Taylor will explore the topic Finding God in the Faith of Others. Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for further information. And now, Jonathan Capehart, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. First question may be uh, pushing back a little bit on what you said, Uh, and I think of, Uh, President Trump, we're here, we might ask you this question. (laughs) Let's see if you anticipate it. Uh,
1: (laughs) I don't know what you're gonna ask me.
0: The the President has called the newspaper you work for and other uh, outlets of the media, uh, basically a front for the Democratic Party, and you sounded like a person who was clearly speaking on behalf of Democratic candidates for the presidency in the next election. How can you, as a journalist, uh, remain objective when you have that much passion in your your own views?
1: Easy. <laughs> Shall we go to the next I, question? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, no I, okay, so I'm pretending you're, you're President Trump. Mr. President. Please I, don't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. If he were here, I would say, Mr. President, I am an opinion writer. My job is to give my opinion. Do not confuse me with Robert Costa on the news side of the Washington Post or Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, two incredible journalists who are chronicling the, every move of this administration. My job is to do the same reporting that they do, but I have the the privilege of being able to say what I think about what I've reported. I think the problem that the president has is that he deems stories that he doesn't like as, quote, fake news, when actually it's just news that he doesn't like. And if he would like favorable coverage of what he's doing, perhaps he should take a look at his policies and start doing things that a majority of the American people would like for him to do.
0: A number of our listeners have sent in questions asking about how to have a conversation, a constructive conversation with those who support the president. Any advice on that?
1: Um, That's easy as well. Listen. I mean, after the election of President Trump, I, like a lot of people I know, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room, I was gobsmacked. I didn't understand what was happening. And so I spent a good year reading and talking to people, trying to understand how people could vote for someone uh, and have that person be elected who just, i mean a majority of the American people polled said that he was, uh, he was unfit for office and yet he's now president. And so by my understanding where the fear and the anxiety came from, and listening to what they've been saying on television and in in print, I I have an understanding. I am willing to sit down and talk to and listen to anyone, but I require that that Trump voter, that that Republican who might not agree with anything that I just said, listen to me. It is a two-way street, this conversation we should be happening. It is not one way. And so if there are any Trump supporters here or voters in this room who didn't like anything that I had to say, I am very happy to talk with you. But I will talk with you as long as we are dealing in facts and not hyperbole and not um, tirades um, dripping in emotion.
0: You referred in your remarks to your own family's uh, history of enslavement. I'm wondering how you feel about the issue of reparations, mm-hmm. which Todd Coates has raised for the nation in new ways, and it's become uh, uh, a kind of a lively topic these days. Any comments on reparations?
1: Well, uh, I think it's H.R. 3 is the name of the bill that would establish a commission that I think would go a long way to helping the nation have the conversation it needs to have in order to have the more difficult conversation about reparations. What does that look like? In what form would that take? For far too long, well, since the, before the formation of this country, our original sin was slavery. It continues to harm everything that we do, and yet we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the ways in which big and small, it impacts our lives today. One of the things that, one of the reasons why I was so interested in finding out more about Trump voters is because the census a few years ago, I think predicted by 2044, the United there will be no majority in the United States. We will become a majority minority country We can't even have the black white conversation right now. How are we going to have a conversation as a nation when whites will be in the minority? Our entire conversation on race will completely change when whites will be able to say, why am I not eligible for this program for minorities? I am one now. That kind of sounds ridiculous right Right now, but that's where we're headed, and as a nation, we're not even having the conversation to get us ready. I think HR3 would be um, a good way to start having that conversation, and I'm sure this, everyone, folks in this crowd have probably read it, but if you have not read Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, epic piece in the Atlantic on reparations, please read it. I was not whenever I heard the word I would just completely turn off but once I read the case that he made there is no denying that recompense in some form should be paid but personally I think and this is a piece that I'm hoping to write at some point I think at base at least I'll speak for myself and and no other African American what I would really like most is for my nation to apologize for what it did
0: You spoke directly uh, uh, in response to Senator Amy Klobuchar on the matter of racial justice in America when she launched her presidential campaign. You were critical of her for not having mentioned that as an issue she would deal with as president, especially in light of the Philando Castile uh, tragedy here in our community. Can you speak more about that? Has, has she redeemed herself in any way since that point?
1: I know she's listening. <laughs> Hi, Senator. So. Look, I'll make an admission. I tuned into C-SPAN to kind of hate-watch the announcement. Who does an announcement in the middle of winter, outdoors in Minnesota, in the middle of a snowstorm? We think it was a brilliant move. But, and I now agree with you, because as I sat there and I watched, not only was it beautiful... But I thought her speech was terrific, except for that one glaring omission. If we're going to talk about the fact that Bernie Sand, one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders um, lost to Hillary Clinton in the primaries is that, she, is that he did not attract African-American voters and couldn't figure out how to talk to them, why isn't that standard used for all the other candidates running for president? And why? would Senator Klobuchar not use that as an opportunity? It's one thing to say I believe in criminal justice reform, but it's another when you have an incident in your relative backyard to not mention his name, say his name, Philando Castile. The ripple effect of that killing through the African American community, not just here in this state, but around the country was intense. And not simply because his girlfriend was able, had the wherewithal to start Facebook Live so that we could see that. I think the senator missed a big opportunity uh, to say something profound to, to Democratic Party voters. There is still time, Senator, to do that in a more public, in a more public and forthright way. Um, but so far, I have not seen that. And let me and let me just add one more thing. Sure. I mean, I have heard Senator Klobuchar speak since since that moment, most recently at a uh, human rights campaign event in Washington. She is she is a dynamic speaker. She is compelling.
0: There's more she can do. a number, a number of questions from uh, the Carlton alums in the audience today, hmm. wondering how
1: are you all clumped in one spot? Yeah. <laughs> basically the whole sanctuary, I think. <laughs>
0: How does a a kid from Newark, New Jersey end up in the middle of the country at a little liberal arts college in Northfield named Carlton?
1: Oh, we don't have enough time for that long, epic story. But it started when I was on a student council convention trip to Reno, Nevada and I was coming down a hill and there was a young black woman standing at the bottom of the hill greeting everybody as they walked by. Hi, I'm Carol Barnett and I'm gonna be a freshman at Carleton College. So I get there, she introduces herself to me, says that to me, and I'm like, well, where's that? And she said, it's in Northfield, Minnesota. You should apply when it's your time to apply for college, you should apply. So that sort of stuck with me. But then um, when it came time for me to apply, I wrote away, because this was pre-internet, wrote away for the packet, got my little booklet with a drawing of of Skinner Memorial Chapel on the the cover. And there was this, and again, this was pre-internet. The fax machine hadn't even been invented yet. And so I called the admissions office every day, several times a day. Uh, And I spoke to this wonderful woman named Beth Clary and she answered every question. My mother said to me, you know, you really should leave those people alone. Um, you, you should really give, give them a break. So one day, I didn't call, D- didn't call. Two days later, the phone rings at home. And I answer and say, hi, it's Beth Clary from Carlton Admissions. Like, oh, oh, well, hi, Ms. Clary, how are you? Oh, fine, we didn't hear from you yesterday. <laughs> And so, I'm just calling to see if you have any questions, if everything is right. I said, well, actually I do. And that moment for me, but also for my mother, was incredible because it showed, when I decided to go, she would have loved if I had stayed closer to home, meaning within driving distance. But she said to me, I feel like I am sending you to a nurturing place. And so she was absolutely right. It, it, it is truly, um, as I've said to folks at Carleton before, I can trace every, just about every fantastic thing that has ever happened to me in my life to the decision to go to Carleton. <laughs>
0: We will not veer off into a commentary on the current college admissions scandal. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, can, can you say more about what this liberal arts education in Minnesota did to form you as a, a leader and a journalist and to create the person, the Jonathan Capehart we know today?
1: Um, a leader? I don't know about all that. I, yes, I, I am a journalist. Um, I think at, a, at, at minimum what Carlton did was feed my curiosity. It took this little kid who was burning up, rubbing the numbers off the keypad on the phone, burning the, their phone lines up with question after question after question. They did not squash it, they encouraged it. Even when my grades went into the toilet because I was the news director of the radio station and news editor of the newspaper in the same term, they encouraged that. And so, again, it goes back to that nurturing environment um, that Carlton is. You know, I had a dream as a little kid to be a journalist or as a news commentator, as I said then. had no idea how to do it, how to get there, and yet here I am. Thanks to Carleton.
0: Imagine this is a room full of Carleton students uh some people uh, one of the students in the room today has sent this question up some people don't want to go to vote especially perhaps younger people how can we affect them how would these carlton students be encouraged by you to go vote in the next election
1: well don't be encouraged by me if you're a young person and you are from upset to angry about things that are happening in the country if you don't like what's happening, or in this case, not happening when it comes to climate change. If you care about criminal justice reform, if you care about doing something about the scourge of gun violence, if you care about LGBTQ plus kids and adults who want to live in a country and cities and communities where they feel safe, you name the issue that you care about and you don't think things are going the way that they should be, then you have to vote there's no there's no excuse for sitting on the sidelines it does it does no one any good to complain about the nature of things and the nature of politics if you haven't done your civic duty to get up go to the ballot box and make your choices known life is unfair no your candidate might not win your candidates might not win most of the time But what point is having the right to vote and exercising that vote if you don't do it? There, again, young people, please hear me. You must vote. Your anger means something. Your concern means something. David Hogg was here last month. Don't follow me, follow him. Follow them. That's your generation. The Parkland kids are the people who, again, are the ones who give me so much hope. Be a part of that hope.
0: In your remarks, you describe the Republican, the Republican Party as dead, uh, this being the coming of the Christian season of Easter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I see where this Uh, is
0: going. You you can see where this question's going. I know what you're gonna ask me. What would a resurrected Republican Party look like to you and is that a possibility?
1: Um, You know, I always ask um, Michael Steele, the former chairman of the Republican Party, African American, you know, we're sitting and we're talking and I give him that brother man look of like, why are you still in this party? And Chairman Steele, says you know this is my party i was here before donald trump took over the party i know what the party stands for i know what i fought for and i am not going to let him or any of the people who follow him or support him drive me out and so what i would like to have happen if if it's if they keep the name republican party fine But what I would like is for the Chairman Steeles and the Nicole Wallaces and the Steve Schmitz and um, the Tim Tim Millers and the other people who have been all over television pounding the, 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 the table about what's happened to their party. I want them to get together and the millions of other Republicans in the country who do not like what has happened to the country and what has happened to their party to start taking whatever action that, is, that they can to start laying the foundation for a, for a revived Republican Party or a new party. It is pretty clear that I am oh, left of center, <laughs> that I am um, a Democrat, but this is a two-party system The Democratic Party is nothing without a a viable and credible sparring partner that a strong Republican Party would make it and vice versa. We need as a nation to have a strong Republican Party. And I look forward to the time when the Republican Party comes back. Uh,
0: There are things that this administration has done which can be undone by a new administration, a different administration. Are there some things in America that will have changed permanently by this administration's actions?
1: The one thing that I fear the most that will be permanent as a result of this administration's actions will be the diminished standing of the United States in the world. That is the biggest thing that, that worries me And with each passing day as the president kicks the EU, kicks NATO, um, kicks our allies, cozies up to dictators, takes the word over the Russian president, uh, over US intelligence officials, at a certain point the world will decide, if they haven't already, that they can't depend on America that they can't depend on the stability that we once were. Despite the craziness of our politics, abroad America was always clear and focused, stable and strong. Once the world figures out that they can get along just fine without us, is a day that we will, we will rue that day. Um, and we won't like that diminished that diminished role at all. And that's the thing that worries me the most that could be permanent.
0: With the 2020 election approaching, I've received several questions here asking about the possibility of uh, a war being commenced before then or some violent inter- interject, uh, interaction uh, with uh, say Venezuela or Iran. What are the possibilities of that do you think with your ear close to the ground in Washington?
1: Well, my ear is not that close to the ground, but um, especially on issues like that. But what I have learned with um, President Trump and his administration is that you have to, you have no choice but to expand your mind to the possibilities, the insane possibilities um, that could come at no point on election night 2016, did I ever think that I would read a story about the United States jailing babies at the border. So the possibility of the United States going to war with Iran, going to war with Venezuela, taking some military action, I, I don't wanna even contemplate that scenario. But I'll be honest and say it wouldn't surprise me in the least, given who the president is, uh, given the fact that it's not about the country, it's about him. And um, we need to get to a point where the chief executive, the person sitting behind the resolute desk in the Oval Office, is is there because they're putting the country first and not their personal Political interests first.
0: Thank you, Jonathan K. Park.
1: Thank you so much.